I'm Steve Fisher. For many of us, pop culture is mainly for entertainment. For Roy Schwartz, it's a vocation. Shakespeare was entertainment for the masses. You were not a particularly educated or noble anything. It was just street theater. So the pop culture of yesterday is the culture of today. And the idea that something is colorful or aimed at a younger audience or is metaphoric or hyperbolic, the idea that it's less worthy is, of course, ridiculous. He knows a thing or hundreds about fairy tales, vampires, and comic books, and he's here to talk about them on Live Slices. Roy Schwartz, I had every intention of talking to you about your CNN.com article on the history of vampires, but you're too interesting a character to leave it at that, so I'll get to that. But first, I want you to spin a tale about who Roy Schwartz is. <laughs> um, an international man of no mystery at all. Uh, I am a writer and an author. I write for various publications, New York Daily News, Jerusalem Post, Philosophy Now. I write regularly for The Forward, which is the largest Jewish newspaper in the U.S., and for CNN.com, where I cover pop culture of various kinds, like the uh, vampire article you just mentioned. Before then, I wrote about the Matrix, that kind of stuff. I also write books. My latest one out now is, Is Superman Circumcised? The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero, which is really a history book of comics, and it is available anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, etc., etc., I am originally from Tel Aviv, Israel. I grew up there. I moved to the States, went to college, got undergrad, uh, double grad, made my wife, fell in love, you know, the whole cliche. Now I have two and a half kids and a dog. Two and a half kids. Yeah, that's a statistic, right? That's the dog and two and a half kids. Exactly. Is that that Jewish discount kicking in? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's got to pay retail, but uh, no, the... uh, (laughs) I always tell my son that he counts like 12 just because of his energy levels, so... um, yeah, so that's what I do. And during the day, I am a mild-mannered director of biz development and communications for a regional law firm. Ah, so I see you've got your Clark Kent glasses on right now as we speak. So when you go to write at night, do the glasses come off and the cape comes on? Yes, except nobody wants to see me in spandex. But uh, <laughs> uh, actually, I, I wake up early in the morning so I can get to spend mornings with the kids, breakfast and getting ready for school. So I wrote the majority of my book between 4.30 and 6.30 a.m. Yikes. Wonderful to be young. Uh Tell me a little something about what it's like to grow up in Israel, because a lot of us outside of Israel don't really understand that country and what it's like to live there. I mean, it's like describing any other country. There, There are all kinds of ways to go about it. I will say that absolutely nothing you will see in the news reflects anything close to the reality whatsoever, even close. I can describe if you've never taken a bite out of chocolate, I can describe to you the texture and flavor all day long. Until you take a bite, you're not going to understand. So if somebody hasn't been to Israel, I highly recommend you go. It really is a beautiful, warm, fun country. And growing up in Tel Aviv, you know, when I moved to New York City, I love New York. It's metropolis, but it doesn't have anything that Tel Aviv doesn't. Tel Aviv is city without break. Everything's open at 3 a.m., but it sort of looks like Santa Monica. It's almost like somebody it's like somebody stepped on New York and then scraped it on LA. It has that weather and the palm trees and the beach, but it has that Vivace Tempo New York energy to it. And it was great. And arguably, growing up reading comics in the, the language of the Ten Commandments, 
gave me insight into some of what I do today. Is, is there a lot of uh, Jewish religion in comics? It's more about Jewish culture and the historical context and Yiddishkeit. But the idea that an industry that was almost entirely created by Jews, and we'll, we'll get into that, the idea that none of their cultural backgrounds seeped into their work, consciously or otherwise, is, is unreasonable. It absolutely did. And part of that are all kinds of biblical tropes and narratives, as I explore in the book. And before we get to any, any of your work, there is a log line on your website that I loved, and it's, takes fun seriously and makes fun of seriousness. Explain that. <laughs> Thanks. That's a tagline on my social media at Real Roy Schwartz and my website, RoySchwartz.com. It's my creed. And it's a paraphrasing of Oscar Wilde, who said, I take all trivial things in life seriously and all serious things with sincere and studied triviality. So I, ju I just streamlined and modernized it, but it's his thoughts. So I don't want to plagiarize here. Yeah, listen, I I love what I do, but I I don't take myself too seriously, you know? So that's that's pretty much what guides me. And I've sort of carved a niche for myself, whether it's a forward or CNN.com, taking these serious quasi-academic looks at pop culture phenomena, science fiction, fantasy, comics, that kind of stuff. Because even if the subject matter is not serious, it is a reflection of history and time and culture and all that kind of stuff. It's worthy of real examination. I like that. I try not to be too serious either. There's no fun in it. So your first book, I believe, was The Darkness in Lee's Closet. Tell us about that book. The Darkness in Lee's Closet and the Others Waiting There. I like short titles, as you can see. Came out in 2018. A very early, early version of that started in, in undergrad at the new school, but over the years it sort of evolved, and it is a spooky fantasy for middle graders, for 8- to 12-year-olds. It's sort of like Neil Gaiman, if you're familiar, or uh, Tim Burton in his earlier period before he went too cartoony. So Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, that kind of stuff. And that book was writ really written as sort of a reaction to the Disney version of fairy tales. The idea that everything will be all right, and you know it will be, that if you just believe in yourself, then you can solve and deal with anything. That kind of saccharine fairy tale really rubbed me the wrong way because it was dishonest. So I wanted to write something that wasn't just dark cosmetically, but that was honest and serious in a way that in, in an eye level for kids it's basically the message there if there is one to the extent that there is one is that bad things can happen the ending is not always guaranteed to be good believing in yourself is not enough you actually have to take action and the core is that with the support of loved ones of your friends and your family and your own gumption you can deal with whatever may come which is a very different message than everything will be all right at the end. I, so. I think that's terrific. I, and I've noticed there's more of a trend in kids' books these days to be a little more realistic with things as, as opposed to when I grew up and everything was sugar-coated and sweet and wonderful and uh, you didn't know about the demons lurking outside. Right, right. And uh, I started it all. You know, I take full credit. <laughs> Call Stan Lee. Tell him. You know, but the... And it's and it's important, you know. G.K. Chesterton said that fairy tales are not true, but they are more than true. Not because dragons don't exist, but because dragons can be beaten. It's that point. The Darkest in Lee's Closet is really about loss. It's a little girl who loses her father very suddenly to a heart attack. She's a daddy's girl. 
Her mom, who's a housewife, has to find a job. They move to a different state, different house. Her teenage brother becomes this, you know, a teenage kid. And she discovers that when she goes to sleep, her soul leaves her body and travels to the afterlife, where she encounters these different levels of purgatory and different people from different places around the world and different points in history that are stuck for one reason or another, right? The whole idea of souls or ghosts being stuck if they, they can't move on. And she makes friends, she makes enemies, and she decides to go on a quest to rescue her father and bring him back. And along the way, of course, there's a timer ticking, right? She can't stay there too long. She will have to find all of her courage and all of her wit if she is to make it back in one piece. And whether or not she succeeds, you'll have to read the book. I like it. Will will we be seeing an animated version of this someday soon, or even a live action? Uh, I hope so. Uh, Call Tim Burton. There, there, it is in talks. You don't want Tim Burton. It's too cartoony. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe he can go back to his roots. Uh, maybe Guillermo del Toro and see if he does it. I, I, I'm in talks about turning it into a comic book, but it's too early to say anything substantial. We'll see. Okay, cool. Now we, we come to your controversial book. Is Superman circumcised? And I don't want to be the one to try to find out. The subtitle is The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero. What inspired that? And tell us more about that book. The title is Superman Circumcised is, of course, playful. It's cheeky. It's not literal. The subtitle will tell you what it's about, the complete Jewish history of the world's greatest hero. And before I go into the substance of it, I will say that it is controversial, A, because everything is offensive to somebody these days, right? Everybody gets something. But also, there are a lot of idiots out there. I say this with love for humanity, but there are. I think there are more idiots than people out there sometimes. And The number of people who really think I wrote a 300-page book about Superman's circumcision, the book has 100 images, you know, it's (laughs) staggering. A lot of people. And aside from the usual, like, anti-Semitism here and there, I've also had a lot of anti-circumcision activists on my case because of the title, thinking that this book is some sort of propaganda to get people snipped. It's amazing. And and I love it. I just love it. And and I, I just love driving them crazy by just saying the exact wrong thing to, to tail, send them into a tailspin. You know, the book is really about the history of comics. And it is from a Jewish perspective, but the book was not written for the Jews, about the Jews, and only about, it's not that. It's the same way that a book about, let's say, the history of jazz and the themes of jazz would inevitably have to include Black American history, the Harlem Renaissance and New Orleans and the early 20th century. And if you love jazz, you don't have to know any of it or care about any of it to love jazz. But if you do, this will add to the experience and will enrich your understanding. That's what this book is about, about comics, because the comic book medium is a Jewish invention. The superhero genre is a Jewish invention. That industry was almost entirely populated by Jews, created and basically created an industry of their own out of whole cloth in the 30s and 40s during the Depression, the eve of World War II, because they could find no work doing anything else. Respectable businesses were closed off to Jews. If you know advertising, publishing, whether it's magazines, glossy magazines, or newspapers, it was all closed off to Jews or minimally allowed Jews in. And if you were an entrepreneurial or intellectual or literary or artistic Jew, you brought that bent to comics because you had nowhere else to bring it to. And that's really the history of it. That's very interesting. So you make the case, uh, you, you point to a lot of things in, in Superman lore that makes him seem Jewish from a background perspective. But he was brought up in the Midwest 
by the Kents, a lovely Midwestern couple who I'm guessing were not Jewish. So is that why Superman always seems conflicted? Perhaps. Also because he has uh, at least two secret identities, two different identities he deals with. And there's an ongoing discussion, which one is his true self? Is he Superman constantly pretending to be Clark Kent? Or is he Clark Kent as he was raised, a farm boy, waiting around to put on the costume and go do some good? And the question is the answer because it's one asked by the character. He's constantly asking, who am I? What is my place? What is my purpose? Which is exactly what we're all asking, right? In his case, it's dramatized, it's colorful, but it's the same thing. All superhero comics are philosophy and action through symbol and hyperbole, right? And that's what mythology is. Now, if Superman, the there are two Supermen, Supermans. And I don't mean Clark Kent and Superman or any version historically, but rather the fictional and the real one. The fictional Superman is an alien from planet Krypton. He happens to look like a Caucasian human hunk. He might as well be a dolphin, right? He, he can fly. He shoots lasers from his eyes. He, he ain't human. And he landed in Kansas. He was raised by the Kents, as you said, who are canonically Christian, either Methodist or Protestant. He grew up to be non-practicing Christian. That's also canonical. He is not Jewish. However, there is a real Superman, and that is a fictional character in the real world, an IP, if you will, in our world. And that character is Jewish. He was created by Jews. He was imbued with rich Jewish signifiers, Jewish symbolism, Jewish themes. And he was developed throughout most of his life, throughout about 50 years of his 83 years, in a very specific Jewish milieu. So that Superman is Jewish. His DNA is Jewish and always will be. Interesting. That is very, very interesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, it's been years since I've read a Superman comic, but I might have to go get one now to uh, read it in this new context. I, I have recommendations if you guys want. No problem. Now, your CNN.com article was the world of Morbius was born over 9,000 years ago. The article was very engaging. How did that one come about? So I cover pop culture phenomena for CNN. Most of my articles come out as op-eds, but it depends. I pitch them on ideas. I usually, one in four gets accepted. I have a wonderful editor who, who's very, as long as it, it's, it, you know, I'm held to a very, very strict standard, which I'm very happy to say is the case. Uh, and as long as I live up to that standard, it's anything of interest. It doesn't have a Jewish angle, although my piece before last was about how the themes of the Matrix movies, and none of the, the newest one, the Matrix Resurrections, can be traced back to the legend of the Golem. An artificial creation who's meant to do good overcomes his creator, has to be put down. We see this in science fiction. You know, it goes into Frankenstein, but it all comes back to the legend of the Golem. But aside from that, I do not write about Jewish themes. It's pop culture in general. And this one was really about the history of the concept of the vampire, the history of vampire lore, both in reality, because people believed in these things, as well as in entertainment. Where does it come from? Where are the earliest records? When did the vampire coalesce into the this kind of aristocrat in a tuxedo? When did they become superheroes? Where did this come from? And that history, again, depending on how you define it, like, like any evolutionary tree, it, genus and species, tomato, tomato, chicken and egg, right? But you can trace them back 9,000 years. That's, that's a long time. One of the things that I was fascinated by in your article is that you do trace it back the 9,000 years and talk about all the different cultures that have a vampire of some sort, a vampire legend. 
So given that it is so widespread, is there truth in the theory of vampires? The short answer is no. I don't think there are any supernatural demonic entities running around at night uh, uh, sucking people's blood or stealing their seed. If you go old school, it's succubus. The first succubus is also the first vampire in literature, which is Lilith in the Epic of Gilgamesh. We're talking about at at least 2000 BCE, if not earlier. And before then, you have some evidence of of general folk belief. But first of all, there are real-life vampires, uh, people who suffer from various mental illnesses who did murder and drink the blood of their victims. That exists. Although that's only barely alluded to in the article, but there are several historical figures who were accused of being vampires, like Countess Elizabeth Bethery, who Romanian countess, who, assuming that it's all true, kidnapped and murdered 650 young girls, tortured them to death. She was probably the most prolific serial killer in history. Legend has it she bathed in their blood to retain her youth, giving her the name the Blood Countess. Ironically, Dracula was never accused of being a vampire. He was bloodthirsty figuratively, not literally. He just enjoyed impaling people on spikes. And it wasn't until Bram Stoker's novel in 1897 that that connection was made. That's really interesting. And I also did not realize that Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula, was not a success when it first came out. No, it sold 3,000 copies. A lot of books that happened. A Christmas Carol. Um, uh, Charles Dickens only sold 6,000 copies on first printing. It's done well for itself since. So, you know, it doesn't always say, but the book was very, Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula was well-received. It was well-reviewed. It didn't sell much. It was considered very salacious, borderline pornographic. Again, this is Victorian England. It didn't do that well commercially. And it wasn't until it started getting adapted into movies, beginning with 1922's bootleg adaptation, uh, Nosferatu, a German horn film by Henrik Galin, who also did The Golem in 1920. It wasn't until then that really Dracula started percolating upward in the popular culture, becoming eventually the household name that he is. The bottom line is, if you have a great mythology-based character of some sort, forget books. Just make a movie of it. Yeah, but to get to the movie, you have to write a book as a proof of concept and then pitch it, right? That's, that's the common wisdom, at least. How do you begin to research a topic like that? Where, wh- what were your sources? Research is my forte, and I'm lucky in that it allows me to really take these deep dives, deep cuts, deep dives into these things. It begins with my background in Israeli intelligence, counterterrorism intelligence, where you really learn. There's no room to play games. You really <laughs> learn to do you, – you learn the craft, and you learn critical thinking and analysis and consuming huge amount of raw data and getting actual intelligence out of it. That I took that into my academic career. I have an interdisciplinary master's in English and social thought. In the case of my book, I also had a uh, fellowship from the New York Public Library. I was a researcher and writer in residence for two years. So I still have my uh, researcher login into the New York Public Library. So I have librarians standing by. I have you know the research catalog available. That's not that hard to get, by the way. If you if you just ask them, they will they will more happily accommodate you. They're, they're hungry for people to come in and use their services, which are fantastic. But it took me about two months of probably two to three hours a day of research. To, to explain something simply, you have to understand it thoroughly. And it took me probably something like 60, 70 hours, maybe 80 hours of work to be able to squeeze out a thousand word article. 
Is there is there a book in this? Are you going to turn it into a book? No, because it's been written. Books oh. about the history of vampires have been written. I, I do say a couple of things in the article that have not been said before me, particularly the development of vampires in Jewish lore, just because I'm able to read Hebrew as well as to an extent Aramaic. So I was able to put things together. But and I do go a little bit into you know why does Dracula wear a cape? Why you know how did they make him a superhero in the comics and that kind of stuff? No, I don't think there's a full book in it. No, I think I've said my piece. Well, you did say something that interested me that you worked in in Israeli intelligence. So do I have to expect a knock on my door from Mossad, making sure we didn't talk about anything out of turn? Yeah, I can tell you everything. I'll just have to uh, kill you. No, the um, <laughs> it was many years ago. My my knowledge is rusty and out of date. Listen, it's a training. It's it's conscripted service. You go. I was in uh, counterterrorism, which is pretty. It's as black and white as anything like that can be. I stopped bad guys from doing very bad things, but it does train you to think very critically on your feet very quickly. And that has definitely served me well in my career. So since you helped to stop bad guys, can you be labeled a superhero? No, no, no. First of all, as I, as I said earlier on, nobody wants to see me in tights. At this point in my life, I look like vacuum-sealed mozzarella. It's not, it's not pretty. <laughs> Maybe in my army days. I, I did, listen, in Israel, you do, it's what you have to do. I did what I needed to do. I am proud of my service. You know, I, I stopped people from shooting RPG rockets into yellow school buses. That That's something I'm going to take with me for life. And, and I am proud of that. But no, not a superhero. A superhero is somebody who in real life goes above and beyond and is willing to risk and sacrifice whatever it takes to do the right thing against all the odds. And there are people who do that. If, if you're looking for real life superheroes, these are the doctors who have high risk uh, health factors and still go in and expose themselves to COVID on a daily basis to heal the sick and wounded. That's a superhero. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to sound a bit schmaltzy and cliche, but it's the mother who, the single mother of three children who works to the bone, but never lets a smile leave her face. So her kids grow up not just healthy, but also happy. That's a superhero. There are, there are many other examples of people who really go above and beyond the call of duty doing thankless stuff only because it's the right thing to do, those are superheroes. So no, I I do not count myself among those. I just saw a story on the news the other day about a guy locally here that was going to, he's not Ukrainian, but he was going to Ukraine to help train medical, field medical personnel on how to treat traumatic injuries. This is a guy that's going and risking his life and he has no skin in the game, so to speak. And that, to me, is a superhero. Exactly right. What is it about pop culture that draws you in? Why do you, why do you write about pop culture? Well, first and foremost, it's fun. Serious culture can be not fun. Can be serious. <laughs> and, and the pop culture of yesterday is the highbrow culture of today. Dickens was pop culture. It was serialized magazines. By the way, the reason all of his books are way too long is because they all started off serialized and he was his own editor and paid himself by the word. That's a fun little trivia for you. Wow. Um, Yeah. Oliver Twist has an entire last chapter that can be cut out without affecting anything in the plot. It's amazing. I mean, I love Oscar, um, Charles Dickens, but still. Shakespeare was entertainment for the masses. Mm-hmm. You were not a particularly educated or noble anything. It was just street theater. 
So the pop culture of yesterday is the culture of today, and the idea that something is colorful or aimed at a younger audience or is metaphoric or hyper, you know, um, hyperbolic, the idea that it's less worthy is, of course, ridiculous. The, the example I always use is that if they unearthed a comic book that was written by Da Vinci and painted by Michelangelo, there'd still be people who say, Pah, it's just a comic book. Written by Shakespeare, let's say. Written by Shakespeare and, and drawn by Michelangelo, they would say, Pah, just a comic book. It, it just illustrates how ridiculous the attitude is. There are some really, really good stuff. And comic books are comic books. You cannot compare them to a movie. You cannot compare them to literature. They're their own medium with their own strengths and weaknesses. But that's just one example. Pop culture in general, as a reflection of the culture that created it, to me is fascinating. And by virtue of being pop culture, by virtue of taking a lower blip on the radar, they are more unfettered windows into the sort of the dreamscape, the unconscious of their creators. There's something more earnest and raw about them than highbrow can be. And I find that all to be fascinating. You're right. I mean, I used to, I would argue with people all the time about Shakespeare and that why do we study this guy like we don't study other playwrights because he was just writing popular entertainment. I mean, he he is, not to sound like a stiff, but he, I mean, he is the undisputed master of English language. Oh, he, right, right. He's amazing. <laughs> if you like any soap opera on TV, if you like Grey's Anatomy or Bridgerton, you owe it to Shakespeare. You know what I mean? It all comes back to him. But yeah, that was popular entertainment in the day. That's what I used to write for soap operas, and, and I, I would tell them, I said, really, I want you to revere the words here, because this could go down in history as the next great next great literature. Yeah, 200 years from now, kids in school will uh, will uh, read telenovelas. <laughs> I don't think so. They'll put on sh- school plays. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I hope not. Yeah. I wanted to get back to with, with the comics. Yes. They went, when I was a kid, I don't know if they still do it, but there was a whole series of comics called Classics Illustrated that took the works of the literary masters and turned them into comic books. Yeah, that and was that's very... how I was introduced to a lot of classic stories and then that would inspire me to go pick up the book and read the book yeah comics are a gateway drug there's actually countless studies and when i say studies not studies pub you know uh, financed by dc comics it's studies financed by education organizations and you know government uh, organizations reading comics makes you much likelier to be a better reader of books and a more regular reader of books in older age and let's be clear Comics is a medium. They're not all targeted towards kids the way not all movies are targeted towards kids and not, you know. But yes, when we say comics, we tend to think of superhero comics as the bread and butter. That's fine for the sake of this conversation. But they are gateway drugs. And you're right. There's Classic Illustrated. There's Bible Stories Illustrated. A lot of those were published by EC Comics back in the day, which were EC stood for Education Comics. And then they became entertainment comics in the late 50s, and they started putting horror comics, you know, all these tales from the crypt and that kind of stuff. And that's, of course, when they create, they led to a backlash, and there was this puritanical, McCarthyist public crusade against comics that basically lobotomized the industry for years, almost killing it. The industry didn't really recuperate financially until the 60s. And to this day, still deals with some of those stigmas. So it was some of the same arguments that there are today about video games. Yes. And the thing is, there was no rating system. Today, you look at a comic. If that comic is not all, it will say teen or mature audiences, etc. Also, you don't pick them up off um, a newsstand anymore. It's in comic book stores. So there's people who can tell you what you should buy and what you shouldn't. But they can be anything from G-rated to R-rated, right? Mm-hmm. Back then, that wasn't the case. So you had... 
you know, five-year-olds picking up things or people getting beheaded and whatnot. It was mostly violent, not so much sexual. Yet the backlash was more about, you could see the outline of a nipple through a robe. That bothered them more than heading, heads getting chopped off. Because, again, puritanical value system, right? <laughs> but yeah, they, you know, comics can range the gamut. And that's okay that they do, as long as the right things are read by the right people. Okay, quickly, are you Team DC or Team Marvel? Yes. <laughs> Good I love it all. I love it all. I, you know, people who love Marvel are referred to as Marvel zombies. Uh, historically, I'm more of a Marvel zombie. My favorite superhero is Captain America, but I love them both. And they both have very different house styles and different characters. And I refuse to make a choice. I like it. I like it. What questions would you like to answer about Roy Schwartz or your work that I haven't asked about? Ooh, that's a good question. So is Superman Circumcised is a research-based nonfiction book that is not – it looks at the history of comics from its earliest days to today from the Jewish angle, but it is not a purely Jewish book. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to care about Jewish. If you love comics, if you love American history, if you love pop culture, that ticks all the boxes – it's from that angle because that's where the industry started. That said, even though it's read to be, it's it, I wrote it to be fun to read. I wrote it as something that I would want to read as somebody who likes these things. But it has over 400 sources. It has 41 pages of endnotes and bibliography. It received a fellowship from the New York Public Library. And it was published by McFarland, which is an academic publisher. So it can also be used to teach and it you can you can count on the factual background of things in it, even though it's written in pretty plain English and casual language. I think that would make a great documentary, a documentary series, like for Netflix or PBS or something. You know, I agree, and I'm shopping it around. So if you or anybody listening wants to pick up that gauntlet, I would be happy to. I can put you in contact with all kinds of people in the industry. Well, Roy, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it, and much continued success and happiness. And having fun. Thank you, and thank you for having me. My thanks to Roy Schwartz for taking time out of his busy schedule to share some of his insights, pick up a copy or two of his books, and read his articles on CNN and elsewhere. And whatever pop culture you enjoy, remember, today's hits might just be tomorrow's classics. If you enjoyed Life Slices, like us and subscribe on social media and wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Feslian Studios. Music.